there's a desperate linkage that we can't undo between the things that scare us the most and things we want the most. In fact, I would suggest to you the things we want the most are, by their very definition, scary. Hmm. Um, and what I mean by scary is that's how much they mean. It's a measure of meaning and purpose in life. And we want meaning and purpose more than anything else, I think. Wow. So the goal is to switch from confidence in the known to the courage that it takes to be out in the sort of known and go after our gold by learning how to dance with our dragons. Hello everyone and welcome to the Flow Over Fear podcast where it is our mission to help you to rise above fear and realize your ultimate potential in leadership and life. I'm your host, Adam Hill, and it is my goal to share with you the human side of high performance. My guests share their experience with fear, anxiety, struggle, challenge, and most importantly, despite all of it, how they rose above it to achieve incredible results. So if you're ready to rise up, let's get started. Well, welcome to Flow Over Fear, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I have a great guest today. It's a guest that I talk to every two weeks or so because this is my this is my business coach. This is the, my my coach more so than business. You know, he he digs in a lot more than just that. This is you know how to live life and run a business, and and I'm really grateful to have him on. His name is Kirk Wayman, and uh, he runs Icon Coaching. And uh, I'm going to read the very first sentence that he sent me in his bio because it's just so so great in how it explains it. I'm just going to read it verbatim. He raised in the idyllic forests of Northern California, where the stoic redwoods tower silently over the Pacific Ocean. I found this lost coast forged much of my identity. I learned the value of pursuing a simple, meaningful, and deep existence. And that just, you know, that's why he's my coach. Uh, <laughs> Kirk Wayman is the founder and principal coach of Icon Coaching, where he creates environments where leaders can become the version of themselves that delivers extraordinary value. With more than a decade of experience and a bevy of past clients with meaningful results, he opens the space to, to allow you to find your highest good for the benefit of those that you serve. Before coaching, he was a business leader and entrepreneur uh, working in business uh, building materials, easy for me to say, construction and land development, and spent many formative years as a nonprofit executive, co-founding a, uh, co a family of businesses using social entrepreneurial model. He has a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration with an emphasis in management and an MA in leadership from Quaker Seminary. When not in the office, he loves to spend time outdoors, fly fishing, uh, pho uh, photo uh, practicing photography and golfing. And uh, it says it cleanses his brain and allows him more time to be the best coach possible for his clients. So thanks for joining us, Kirk. What a wonderful intro that was. <laughs> thanks for having me, Adam. That is a testament to the value of hiring a copywriter. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So true. But uh, um, well, I, I, I'm very grateful you're here because I've, I've truly gotten a lot of value from you over the last couple of years uh, that we've worked together. Yeah, and great. I'm really grateful that you're able to sh share some value today. And like any good talk or like any good conversation, uh, good conversations start with a story. And one of the stories that you've been known for and one of the stories you've introduced to me is, is, the, is the dragon story. Can you kind of share some of that and give us some context into what we're going to talk about today? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, I like to remind people that this story is not true, but I think it could be. <laughs> um, a long time ago, 
in uh, what we often call the Middle Ages, that time period in Northern Europe where things weren't going particularly well. Um, everybody knew two things for sure. First, they knew that there was a known world and an unknown world. And they could map their known world pretty effectively. They could get around. They, they knew where the edges of it was. And then they'd, they'd have to do a little bit of guessing. It'd get a little fuzzy. And then there was something beyond that. And they didn't know what it was. And so their cartographers would build these maps. And they, would, they were actually brilliant works of art. They're beautiful. Um, and they'd get all of Northern Europe right in Italy and down in the south. And, and then uh, they'd get over the Mediterranean. And then it, they didn't know what was beyond that. They knew that. There was a known world and there was an unknown world. The second thing that they knew for sure is that dragons were real. Nobody questioned that. But what was weird is nobody had ever actually seen one either. And it's important to know where your dragons are. That's not a thing you want to miss. And so the map makers had a problem. Like, where do we put the dragons? And so they would just put them out in the unknown world. So you can actually find some of these old maps that show all the known world, and then out in the far reaches where it's just blank or empty or they were just guessing, they would draw dragons. And out in the oceans, they'd put sea monsters. Well, over time, they kept sending explorers out, and they would explore more and more of the unknown world. And they'd come back and tell the map makers what they found. And so they could draw bigger and bigger worlds. And they would do this over and over. But every time they came back, they would never talk about dragons. They never ran into them. So they learned a third thing. There's a known and an unknown world. Dragons are real and they live in the unknown world. And so the map makers would just keep moving them. They just kept moving them further and further out. Well, eventually they discovered and we discovered the whole world. They'd gone everywhere and they never ran into a dragon. And so we don't believe in dragons anymore. Now we believe in aliens, which is probably the same concept. <laughs> but some of the psychologists in the last century began to play with this idea and they, they began to describe it as we've internalized our dragons. We've taken them in, internal to us because we have a similar idea in our own minds. In our minds, we have a mental map or mind map, and it's mapped to describe our known world and our unknown world. And we all have one. We all have places that we can navigate well, relationships, cultures, business practice, um, accomplishments, failures, all these things that we can navigate around. And there's a map in our mind. And then, of course, there's places we've never been before. They are beyond our imagination even. We can't even guess at what they are. And we have internalized our dragons, and they live in the unknown world. Now, let me pause for a minute and just describe what is this dragon thing? We think dragons represent five things that humans are terrified of. Four apex predators and then one natural disaster. Dragons tend to have four legs and claws that run in a particular way. And those are the, the lions, the big cats. They have long necks and long tails, the snakes. They have scales and big toothy jaws. That's the crocodiles and the alligators. And they have huge wings, which is the birds of prey. And they breathe fire. And we're terrified of fire when it gets out of control. So we think dragons are nothing more than a mythological creation of our fear. We don't believe in dragons in fact anymore. 
we believe in them in myth. And those are the kinds of places that we store our deepest truths. The difference between confidence and courage is simply the map. In our known world, we get to be confident. We've done it before. We know if we do this, this happens, at least that's a high probability it will happen. We're confident. It's a nice feeling. But when we navigate beyond our world, when we walk off the map, that is a different experience. We can't be confident out there because the dragons start to roar. It's where they live. Now, the thing is, that line between the known and the unknown world, there's a boundary there. And it's the boundary between confidence and courage. And it's the line of fear. When we cross from our known world into our unknown world, we feel fear. We all do. We all feel that sense of foreboding or nervousness and worry. And the question is, what is that fear for? And what the fear is for is to remind us that we are no longer in the land of the known, that we've entered the unknown, and that we cannot be confident out here. We haven't done it before, but that's okay. So what the dragon is there to do is to remind us of that. It roars, it scares us so that we will make that switch or possibly decide if it's a switch worth making. <laughs> Not everything, um, there are many things we are scared of that we are supposed to be square, scared of. We're not supposed to go out there, mm. or at least not yet. So the dragon roars, it's this mythological creature that represents fear, and the fear is not fatal, it's for something. It's to remind us it's time to switch to courage. But what we're actually doing is entering this murky land between the known and the unknown. It's what we might call the sort of known. <laughs> and the, the goal of, of high performance, the goal of development, the goal of leadership, the goal of the entrepreneur is to actually cross that line and make the sort of known known for the benefit of others. And then the dragons move because dragons always live in the unknown. Once the world becomes known, the dragon moves because it's not needed anymore. And then we do it again and again and again and again. And over time, we grow our map and our dragon just keeps moving. Hmm. Now, there's one more piece to the, to the myth that I think is the most fascinating. And it kind of, it's kind of revealing that we don't even notice it. Many of us just watched the movie a number of years ago, um, The Hobbit. And in The Hobbit, it's a classic dragon story. There's Smog the dragon. And he's all mm -hmm. the scary things. Oh, um, yeah. But what's interesting is smog and most dragons hoard gold. But why? What in the world does a dragon need gold for? We don't ask that question when we go watch these stories. It doesn't even dawn us. It is self-evident to us, at least subconsciously, why dragons hoard gold. And it's because the thing that scares us the most in the world is always guarding the thing we want the most. Mm. Those two ideas are generally connected. When we're going after something that we haven't done before, something we say we really, really want, it's always got a dragon sitting on top of it because we can't go get it without courage. And the dragon is there to remind us this journey is probably going to be hard, but worth it. Hmm. So dragons hold gold because there's a desperate linkage that we can't undo between the things that scare us the most and things we want the most. In fact, I would suggest to you the things we want the most are by their very definition, scary. Hmm. Um, and what I mean by scary is that's how much they mean. It's a measure of meaning 
and purpose in life. And we want meaning and purpose more than anything else, I think. Wow. So the goal is to switch from confidence in the known to the courage that it takes to be out in the sort of known and go after our gold by learning how to dance with our dragons. And they will move. And in time, I think we learn how to lead that dance. And I think that might be a way of describing how I have experienced the word flow. It's that the dance is now, I know the steps to this. And there's a way in which I think you might even be able to achieve a confidence in our ability to make the unknown known, even though we can never have confidence in the unknown itself. So leading, and I love how you say leading the dance there. And that's, that's why I want to introduce it with the dragon story, because <laughs> it's such a perfect description of our fears and how, how they're represented. It, it, it outlines and, and, and you know, that the, the drag and you point out that the dragon moves, yep. but it, you never say that the dragon leaves. <laughs> that's right. Right. So you, I don't think we conquer dragons. I don't think we slay dragons. I don't think we, um, I don't think we eliminate them. Mm -hmm. I think we move them. And I think if you can identify your dragon, you'll discover that that dragon shows up over and over and over. I don't think we face new dragons. I think we just move them. In fact, I think it's important to build a relationship with that dragon. Mm -hmm. It's there for something. It often has something very important to teach us. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a powerful story. And, and how did you, so where, where did you hear this story? Or is this a story that you've kind of come up with or, or is it something mm -hmm. that you've heard yep. somewhere or, or where, where's it from? It's an amalgamation of a variety of pieces that I've heard different places. Um, mm -hmm. It starts in a book It's a little comment in a book uh, by a guy named Brian McLaren years and years ago. Um, and he just uses the phrase, there be dragons. And it turns out that phrase was initially engraved in Latin on some of the first globes that were ever made because mm. it, it was the transition from the map makers into globe makers and they were copper globes you had to engrave and it's just too hard to engrave a full dragon. So they just put in Latin, there be dragons. Yeah. That line has emerged in there's movies and books that have used that line before. Um, inside of Jungian psychology, you'll get the idea of the monsters that have moved inside of us. Um, Jordan Peterson has done work around dragons. He has a bit that he does about it. Um, and there's, there's actually some books that have been written about the mythology of dragons throughout the globe, because you find dragons in most cultures. They're not always precisely the same mythology, but they, they have the same characteristics. And so in culture after culture after culture, there's dragons and it's largely thought, or at least supposed that it's around this idea of the mythology of fear. And it's very necessary for societies, for cultures to understand how fear works and mm -hmm. how to dance with it and what it's for and where it lives. And so we build, we build mythological truths to store our, our highest and our highest truths are, are yeah. held in our mythologies. Yeah. And it's, it's fascinating to me how, how a lot of these ideas, I mean, in, in even talking about dragons, they're not new. I mean, dragons no. have existed in, in, uh, in, yeah. in folklore from the, you know, from ancient China to, 
you know, to, as, well, that's as far back as I can remember, but <laughs> that's, <laughs> that is a long way back. <laughs> it's a long way back. Yeah. But you know, a lot of these things that we're talking about, like rising above or, 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 or going beyond or dancing with our fears, they're not new concepts, but mm-hmm. they're things that we've, we've wrestled with our in, in, in through generations. And so I love how you put it that we, we eventually, we learn, you know, as, as we're, as the dragons continue to move, we learn to dance with them. So can you kind of expand on what dancing with fear might look like? Yeah. I think a lot of um I think it's first held in this in in what it's not like mm-hmm. and that is the brand fearless or the yeah. notion that you could become fearless, right? There's um Taylor Swift has a song called Fearless and and if you listen to it it's just darling. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice if she mm-hmm. was right about that? Um there's and there's a variety of other kinds of brands and books and things that'll capture this idea of fearlessness because I think we desperately want to be fearless. And there's a mm-hmm. season of our life when maybe we even feel a bit invincible and so it, it resonates and that's fine. Over time though, I think it's in, um, incredibly valuable to get past that. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, is largely the hope that we can live a life um, free of failure, I would say. And failures are many deaths and death is the ultimate fear, I think. I think that's a driving fear, the death drive mm-hmm. ideas. Um, and so we're trying to deal with that. So in time, I think we come to a spot where we have to come to terms with fear. Um, and I think for some people, it creates the, the, um, the slowing down or possibly the end of growth. We have grown enough. We have faced enough fear. And we get to this place where we're, we're like, this is good. And the truth is, it often is good. It's fine. Um, to dance with fear, I think of that as being, and to lead that dance is to get to a spot where we're no longer seeking to be fearless. We're not trying to kill fear. We're not trying to eliminate fear. We're not using fear as a metric for um, if I'm doing the right thing or the wrong thing. It's that we expect it. <laughs> it becomes a norm, an experience that we have of um, that might even be like a compass even. I think you can actually navigate by fear. Mm -hmm. Uh, The question is to to turn fear into a compass. I think you have to ask another question. Is this thing I'm moving towards actually scary? Um, And I think it takes some wisdom to figure that out. So I think to build the practice of being able to dance with fear effectively, just takes time because you have to learn, is this thing actually scary? Because if it's not actually scary and I'm feeling fear, I think you can use that. And that's often the invitation to move towards it. Hmm. If it is actually scary and wisdom is telling you that I think you can take action and it's run away. And I think there are things where you, you learn, get away from that. That's really, really dangerous. Sure. Um, or at least dangerous for now. So to dance with fear, I think is to be able to use fear as a tool to understand what it's for and it actually can motivate or help us navigate and, and teach us what to do next. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Something. Yeah. I think the, that, uh, and I like that idea of using it as a tool because we are often times, I mean, the, I mean, a lot of times we're very either or on this that, you know, you have to either avoid fear altogether, you know, just stop being, stop being afraid. We've heard that in our vernacular over the yep. course of the last few years or, you know, or, you know, rise above it, but there's never this in between that fear, can, fear is always, can always be useful. Mm-hmm. It can either be telling us 
well, we need to avoid that bear over there. That's probably not a good idea to, to go face that fear right now. Or we could, or we could, you know, rise above it or, or look at it as a signal to where we're pushing against our comfort zone and actually move the dragon, so to speak. Yep. So I, 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 I get a lot from that. I resonate a lot with that, that using fear as a tool. Um, I, I would love to kind of take a step back and kind of dig in a little bit to your story here too, and find out what a, what brought you into this world of, of coaching and this mm. world of wanting to help people in business and, and, and that sort of thing, because just to, to articulate that first sentence, you know, where, where you're learning, uh, to live the, uh, to, and value the, the meaning of a simple, meaningful, uh, and deep existence. First of all, what does that mean to you? <laughs> um, Hmm. Simple is a overly used word. I think it's a very difficult thing to accomplish. And many people who are living very simply are not living without intent or passion or purpose. Um, but they have decomplicated their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, they're living with great intent and they're often highly productive. And, um, so simple doesn't mean, um, I, I don't know a better, <laughs> a better, more descriptive word without going on for hours, sure. but it's, it's, it's more like focused. Um, meaningful is the, I think meaning is, um, probably the thing most people are looking for in life, meaning and purpose, that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there are things deeper than meaning. I think we have, we are invited into the production of meaning itself. Um, and I've been on that journey for, for my whole adult life as many yeah. of us have. And then as I began to play with those ideas, finding a mechanism through which I could share them, right? Mm -hmm. That was a, a large drive. Um, the depth idea is, if you think about the idea of originality, the goal to be original often means doing something at the fringe or boundary of the human experience, doing something new. Mm -hmm. That's um, where the dragons live, right? Exactly. <laughs> and I think there's a, a way in which that is what's going on. And, and people are doing things that you could say, well, that's original. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is in the word original is the word origin. We use that word to mean the exact opposite in other contexts, which means to do something that is from the origin of all things, fundamental, foundational. And so there's a way in which to go out and play on the boundaries and to play out in that place of new. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's best done if you're doing it, if your center holds. Um, and I think the center is doing things that are deep, and what I mean by deep is they are the things that humans have always done. Mm -hmm. Can we find the place of origin thought? Um, can we find the things that have resonated throughout the human experience over all time and then find new and interesting ways to deploy that? And so there's a depth that I think is super necessary, super interesting that I'm fascinated by that then allows us to I'll use the word safe or uh, to, to live on the edges in meaningful ways. And so I'm trying to do both simultaneously. I don't know that <laughs> that's the goal, um, but that's where the depth comes from. And I find that when we're able to do that, we end up focusing, which I think is a more simple life. Um, I think we end up being uh, building more meaning structures in our life that are more long-term, more valuable over time. So mm -hmm. it requires this idea of playing on the edges, innovation, creativity, um, but from a place of depth. 
I see. So it starts with it's 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 it starts with depth. Like we have to go deep first before. Well, we I think it's kind of a both and. Okay. I think in many other many other reasons that I'm attempting to find depth is because playing on the edge without it wasn't safe. Mm-hmm. But if you're only finding depth without it ever testing it on the edges, maybe that's boring. <laughs> right. You know. Yeah. Well. So where at this time in your in your journey are you finding that depth? What are you finding that depth in? Um, I'm actually in a in a liminal space between two things for the last uh probably decade or so um i was finding it in a lot of our coaching work a lot of our framework is built on three different um fields of study we spend a lot of time in psychology um uh, philosophy and then theology um and we kind of mix those three things together and so the pursuit of depth for me was reading and working in those fields and exploring those things. So I went to grad school to do that. That was part of that journey. Mm-hmm. Did a lot of the theology and philosophy work there, and then have been exploring psychology and reading what people way smarter than me have said about all these things, and then looking for themes throughout time where people keep saying the same thing over and over and over, and then seeing if I can integrate that. Um, the So I have consumed a lot of content <laughs> over the last decade, um, mm-hmm reading books, videos, just anybody I get my hands on. Um, at the moment that isn't feeding me the same way. And I've been exploring what the new version of that will be, how to continue to, to work out the depth. And what I think I'm doing right now is exercising those muscles. So I think I'm in more of a building doing phase, um, than I have been in the past. Last 10 years, I've been just sort of, I've been by myself as a, working in a freelance model and mm-hmm. just trying to get as deep as I can. And there's a limit to how deep I can go. Um, I think <laughs> that's a self declaration of limits, huh? Right. I mean, yeah. I did sure. it. Limiting belief, right? Uh, yeah. Right there. <laughs> um, but right now what I'm trying to, what we're doing and have been working on the last couple of years is we're building out a team and we're looking at ways of, of going more broad. Um, and so I'm spending, it's interesting. As we're talking about this, I'm realizing I'm actually spending less time in the depth and more time at the edges mm-hmm. of, of what I've done so far. So, I see. Yeah. And, and, I've, and I see a lot of, of content that you put out, too, because you've got a very active YouTube channel, yeah. um, which I, I, uh, I have here. I can promote it's uh, YouTube uh, at Icon Coaching on YouTube. And uh, that's with a K, by the way. Um, and yeah, a lot of great content, a lot of great shorts if you, if you want to look at some great content that's that's the place to go is that kind of where you're operating on the fringes right now and get a little more deeper there yeah a little bit we're learning how to take our framework and deliver it in uh content kind of a Mm -hmm. thing trying to become content creators i've spent zero time over the last couple decades building platform and all that stuff um it wasn't i just wasn't concerned with that yeah um so that's a that's more of a long term play over over ideas I have for the next three to five years of work. Um, right now, what we're doing is we're I've got a team of there's a team of three of us coaches and one consultant, and we're working on expanding that in the in the process of doing that. What I'm what I'm trying to do is build a team that can think with me mm-hmm. because there's the idea of you can only go so far alone, and if you want to go a long ways, like I could go, I could move fast before. But now I'm trying to move far, and I'm I feel as though I've come to the end of what I can actually accomplish well by myself, um, and so we're we're playing together as a team, and 
it's been great. It's in this last year, it has solidified. Um, and we're able to, now we're actually building products and new deliverables and consulting packages and, and things like that. That's great. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's definitely showing in, in the years that I've been with you, you could see the evolution for sure. Yeah. And, and especially with the content and, you know, I'm interested in, you know, kind of where, you know, that, that, that element of fear, it's, it's a big, uh, you know, it's a big part of your message and what you share is because I mean, you know, entrepreneurs, business people, they operate yeah. on those fringes where the dragons are. That's right. And, and so fear is a big part of that. And you've had that own, your own experiences with, you know, having to deal with the fear and, and kind of learning about that, learning how to dance with that through your own experiences. I know, you know, you had some early near grief experiences and, and trauma. Can you kind of share a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did grow up in a, in a pretty idyllic place in the world mm -hmm. and nothing really bad had ever happened to me. Not really. Um, it was pretty great. I ended up getting married, um, married, married a girl I met in seventh and eighth grade. Um, and it was, it was just wonderful. And then mm -hmm. about six years into marriage, we decided to start a family. We had our first son. Um, and I had a earth shattering, like meaning structure shattering experience where he was born and we all have the image of what that's supposed to look like. And it did not look like that at all. Mm -hmm. And he was, uh, he was born and pretty quickly got, uh, he was born a little tiny hospital. They couldn't handle what happened. And so they called up UCSF out of San Francisco, flew up in airplanes and took him away. So six hours into his life, he's gone and we don't know what's wrong. And, hmm. uh, it begins. And he ended up having open heart surgery at three days old. Wow. Um, and you know, that by itself was just this, um, I can still feel those feelings of the uncertainty of it all that we were right. shoved. I did not choose to walk across the fear line in that experience. I had no mental map for how to navigate this. Um, I had a social worker sit with me the night he was hmm. born and just look me in the eye and say, I need you to know this isn't normal because <laughs> hmm. I didn't know where I was. I had lost context. Um, so we didn't get to hold him for the first 20 something days. We finally bring him home. He's, he's a cardiac kid. Now we're in the constant care of a cardiac unit out of San Francisco. And at six months old, he had another surgery at about four months old. And then at six months old, he had a second open heart surgery because they discovered he had a lung disease too. And mm -hmm. it's a disease that is used to be correlated with his heart condition. And they pretty much stopped it. They've, they've figured it out. So it was kind of a big blow to even the doctors that he had. Um, this lung problem as well. And it turns out the lung problem is terminal. And so we had to sit with our doctors and have the conversation of your son is going to die from this disease. We don't mm -hmm. know how to fix it. We're it. We don't know what to do. Well, it's not that they didn't know what to do, but um, they just, it's progressive. It just keeps getting worse about the best we can do is slow it down. And so at that point we're going home with a son that's going to die in the next 10 or 20 years. Um, and we lived with that lots of hospital visits, um, for, for about 10 years and about 10 years into that journey, we had a very surprise event, which would take too long to describe the whole thing right now. But, um, they called us in after doing a heart catheterization, which is where they test everything. Um, and 
they call us in and they're all, his whole team is there. The nurse practitioners, about four doctors, these people we've been journeying with for years and they wanted to be together to deliver good news because they, they said, we never get to deliver good news. And they told us it's better. He didn't get worse this time. He's better. Hmm. Um, and so then another six months later, they ran the same test again and he was still better. And at that point they uh, told us he's not terminal anymore. This wow. isn't what's going to kill him. Um, which I always make the comment that when you go from being terminal, all you've done is up the upgrade is to mortal. Like you're still going to die. We just don't know what you're going to die from anymore. Yeah. Um, so, and yeah. it turns out that's a sizable upgrade. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so then we had to make that, but we had to make this transition out of that and the healing process, being able to, to sit with the pain of that whole 10 year experience, get to the other side of it. Um, it had wreaked, um, it had, been like a wrecking, well, that's too strong of a metaphor. It had been, it had hurt our marriage. Our marriage, my wife and mine's marriage had been impacted. That's a better word for it. Sure. By that whole experience, we had some rebuilding to do. We our our sense of how the world works and what matters and where meaning comes from and what are we safe. And I mean, we had had this brush with death mm-hmm. and we'd lived with a perpetual, um, it was like having death in your house all the time and, but not actually experiencing it. Um, so he's 22 now and, uh, doing great. He still has the lung condition, but it's managed. It's under control. It's, if you met him today, you'd, you'd never know any of this had ever happened. Mm -hmm. Um, but that became an experience of prolonged trauma, deep fear. And it, it was a shattering experience. It was the worst thing that has ever happened to me. And mm-hmm. I think that's a special category. That's a special place. Um, and until it's happened, there's nothing there. Right. Right. Um, it's what we call suffering. And my wife and I together suffered that journey and suffering is something that either deep suffering is something that either makes you or breaks you. And it takes time, quite a bit of time to figure out which, mm-hmm. but I learned in that process. No, I wouldn't say I learned. I began to ask different kinds of questions and I began to have to deal with fear, primarily the fear of death. Um, I began to ponder those kinds of questions and did my current understanding of how the world worked, where, mm-hmm. where the good was, could it could it sustain me through that experience? Um, did it work? And in some ways it didn't. And hmm. I had to adjust. I had to, to go deeper into myself and begin to think about these ideas. And it turns out my brain and who I am loves to think about these ideas. So right. I went on the journey. And so was that, was that journey alone or did you go on it with your wife or was it, was it something that you had to go through together? Yeah, we, we did it differently, but we did it together. We stayed connected through the whole, through the experience. Um, Mm. her journey is, is different in meaningful ways from mine. Um, but we also did it in community. Um, we have, um, people around us that were part of that. Um, it's not something I would want to do alone. Sure. At all. Um, we had a, um, 
we had some anchor points that I think really served us well as we walked through that. But what I learned was, it was interesting, as, as I started to have this experience and I started to have something in this sort of room in my mind called the worst thing that's ever happened to me, mm-hmm. I began to hear other people's stories. Other people started to share their worst thing that's ever happened to them. Mm-hmm. And these are people I might've known for a while, but they had never shared that story with me. And I began to ponder the idea that, oh, they weren't, I wouldn't have under, understood it. But now that I've joined this group of suffering, right, there's a solidarity amongst those who have suffered and suffered well, and we share stories together. And I was like, oh, I'm being invited into this experience. And then strangers, sometimes. we For a while, we had a baby that was on oxygen. And if you have a baby on oxygen, everybody knows something terrible has happened. Yeah. And so people would come up and they would, they would share their story with me. They wouldn't lead with people say some of the dumbest things sometimes in the face of suffering. (laughs) Yeah. And that didn't happen. What would happen is they would share their story. And I found that incredibly meaningful. And I began to understand that everybody eventually has something in that room. Mm -hmm. And while they, while they're not all objectively the same, you can actually rank trauma or suffering. There's some things that are objectively worse than other things, but once it crossed some kind of threshold into the worst thing that's ever happened to me, they're subjectively somehow all the same. Yeah. And we collectively have these experiences where say the universe punches us in the face, or we come to grips with the dread of existence as the existentialists say, and we have to figure out what to do with that. And I think great entrepreneurs, great leaders, the elders of our community, people of wisdom, I think they've learned what to do with that. Mm -hmm. And then they can become guides to help guide others through that process. Hmm. Um, I, I just think people that are faster at moving into the unknown and making it known have a tendency to have significant impact, um, influence in our lives. They change the world. Yeah. But it's the crossing of that fear boundary that's actually involved. <laughs> the learning to dance with our fear of death, with our mortality, with allowing our meaning structures to somewhat crumble in front of us and keep going. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's, that's a, I, I'm, thank you for sharing that with, with us in the audience, because I think there's a lot of people that can struggle with that. And one of the common themes that comes up in all of these conversations I have and all of the interviews that I've had with people who have achieved great things or overcome things, uh, difficult things has been the sense of community of finding that tribe of people yeah. or, or that mentor or that group that can, you know, help them through that way. And that's, you know, what, what you're saying sounds almost counterintuitive that, that other people sharing their versions of their suffering with you while you're suffering, it sounds like, you know, at least if, if I were to approach somebody who's suffering, I would feel uh, odd about uh, uh, saying, you know, something about my story. But um, but there's power in that sharing of that story, it sounds like you're, you're saying. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and and if you don't mind me asking, how um, how was your son's reaction to all this? Did did he know he was terminal? How did <laughs> how is he working through this? Yeah, it um, his story is very different than ours. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, the the you know his birth is the beginning of it for us. He came became aware of it over time, and uh, 
we had a conversation one time where he, he gets this, all these tests and all this stuff. And, and, um, he started to ask me very, uh, different kinds of questions. One time we were down mm-hmm. at the hospital together, my wife and our other son were at home and, and he just looks at me and he goes, dad, what's, what's my number. And he, I interpreted that as he was asking about lifespan for the first time. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have a number for that. He didn't, we didn't have a specific answer, so I didn't have to tell him a specific thing, but I watched him start to wrestle at that point with this whole concept kind of for the first time. And it's a, it's a age appropriate time in his life to do that. But it was an awful experience of having to hand him this super ugly thing, this difficult thing. You just have to hand it to him and let him start to carry the weight of his, of this reality for him or what seemed to be the reality. Mm-hmm. And it was just about that time that we got the news that they were taking terminal off the table. And so we were starting to get the best news of his life so far, but he was just starting to wrestle with the worst news of his life so far. And he had to walk through that whole process. It took a couple of years, um, maybe longer for him to actually go through the whole valley of the experience before he was able to start to rise back into, but I'm not terminal anymore. Um, mm-hmm. So it hit, it hit him. I would say very differently. Um, but we had, oh, great advice from our, our doctors. There's pediatric cardiologists. So that's, this is what they do. They walk through this kind of stuff with families. Sure. Um, they were great. They encouraged us to begin to process this with a much younger than mm-hmm. I would have wanted to. Um, cause you want to protect them, right? Right. You don't want right. them to have to carry this big ball of ugly. Yeah. That's a difficult thing to have to, you know, really, you know, work through with, with your kids. I couldn't even imagine having to, to work through that, but, uh, if, if you had a piece of advice for somebody that's just starting to go through that process or th- go through that kind of grief or that longer term fear that they didn't ask for, what, yeah. what would you, what would you say to them? Um, it's interesting that when we were leaving the hospital for the first time, we'd been down there for about three weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, as we were, it was a center where they do this particular surgery. And so they fly people in from all over the place. And so as we were leaving, there was another family just arriving. It was uncanny. We didn't say anything. We didn't talk to him, but we knew who they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and we walked by them and I saw what I had looked like three weeks ago. And it was just ashen face, just yeah. completely decentered and undone and confused and lost and sad. And, and I didn't feel that way anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I still felt bad, but I didn't feel that bad. I had mapped it a bit. Um, and I think that's one of the things that draws us through this is first of all, there is no around these experiences. Um, you just have to go through it mm-hmm. and you just keep moving. You're not going to move fast necessarily, but if you just keep moving and sometimes it doesn't feel like you're even moving, but that's part of the experience. Um, secondly is it's very, very difficult to do these things alone. Yeah. Um, and you don't know when they're going to happen, but they're going to happen. Um, I would say that the only thing for certain that you can guarantee everybody will experience in life is suffering. Everybody will have a moment of some kind where the worst thing that ever happened to you will happen and you don't want to be alone. 
Um, and because you can't plan it, you have to be all, there's a way in which you always have to be prepared for it. So being in community, building relationships that matter, um, is probably the second thing is that you'll just, it, it's necessary, probably the human experience entirely, but certainly for the moments of suffering. Sure. Um, the third is to do the work consistently, which I don't mean every day, but be in the constant process of evaluating and upgrading, upgrading your meaning structures, your mm -hmm. worldview, the, your belief systems from which you operate. Um, because all the little things that break along the way, the, all the little hardships that we have that are, they're very important and they teach us. But one of the things that we want to do with them is learn what in our belief system is reliable, valuable works and what can be upgraded. Um, but sometimes what we do is we, we develop a point of view or a, a way of navigating the world, um, maybe somewhat early in our life and it might work for a time, but then we think we have it figured out and we don't do the work to consistently upgrade it. We just camp on that. We just stay there and it actually won't carry us through some of these harder things. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you're constantly doing the work to find the most meaningful things to believe, the, the things that have worked for humans over, well, the whole of the human experience, if you can find them to constantly be upgrading those, finding new mindsets, new ways of being in the world, new things, um, new core belief systems. Then when you get punched in the face by the universe, you'll have a better chance of having it be an experience you can get through. Wow. So just, yeah, kind of like the fixed mindset versus the growth mindset mm -hmm. kind of attitude. That's, that's uh, right. That's, that's, uh, that's powerful. Um, and, and, you know, how would, if, if you would say now, given, you know, there's been 20 years since this experience, you're now, you know, thriving as a, as a coach, you're building mm -hmm. a team, you're doing all of these great things. What are, what are, you know, what is one or, what are one or two of the best experiences you've had since that moment? Like mm. the greatest experience you've had. Yeah. <sighs> Probably. Huh. There's so many directions I could take that. Um, <laughs> that's why I ask them. They yeah, I know. That's always, you know, you've asked a great question when someone goes, that's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of them would probably be the transition into my forties mm -hmm. where I, um, I felt it, it actually happened. Um, right. I was in the construction world <laughs> and I lived through the 2008 crash which mm -hmm. decimated the construction world. I mean, everything oh, we were yeah. doing just fell apart. It was awful. It wasn't the worst thing that ever happened to me. It was bad. And anybody in that, in that field at that time experienced much the same thing. Oh yeah. I was in that field as well. I yeah. know it well. Yeah. It was just, everything fell apart. Yeah. Just, yeah. Um, and I had to figure out what to do next. And, and that began a journey of me deciding it was time to actually make a, a very intentional choice about career direction until that point I'd kind of been following my nose a bit. I'd been following what I was good at. What would people pay me for? What could I figure out? That kind of thing. But mm -hmm. I'd figured out a bunch of stuff and it was a refining process allowed me to begin to dialogue about what is it the thing? Well, I, I would ask the question or I was asked it. What's the hill you're willing to die on? Mm -hmm. Right. What's that? Cause I wasn't quite on it yet. Um, 
And what I learned is that statement is not a statement of willing. It's actually what hill are you going to die on? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I I engaged that about that time. And I went back to grad school, which is something I'd wanted to do for quite a while. I tried a couple times, but it just either didn't work or the timing wasn't right. But I did that. And that experience, um, doing a, I did a master's in leadership at a Quaker seminary up in Portland, Oregon. It was just transformational. It was a fabulous. It was well timed in my life, um, and I got to I got to sit with myself for about four years, and just really go as deep as I could. And I would call that a very transformational experience. Um, I used that time to actually develop the framework from which I coach now, and that's when I launched the coaching business. Um, so I found that as a very significant high point that has surprisingly, it surprised me how meaningful that was. It felt like a huge risk at the time. In retrospect, it now seems obvious. Um, Yeah. That's one. Another one is um, my childhood was organized around a particular river in a particular place in the world. Um, my, My dad and mom would take us up there, and it became one of those origin stories to my existence. And... Those those years are so impactful, so meaningful to me that I actually had to not go there for about 15 years to to somewhat separate myself from it. I didn't know I was doing that, but I just couldn't be there. I mm-hmm. didn't know who I was without it, right? Something like that. And I needed to in some way transcend it, I guess. And one day, it's on the coast of uh, Northern California, and one day my family and I were driving down the coast, and I happened to pull into this road that has an overlook of it. And I said, hey, let's go check it out. And so we drove up there, first time in maybe 15 years, and I stared at it for a minute, and I was shocked it was still there. <laughs> like, it wasn't there in my heart anymore. But it had been there the whole time. I could have come back at any time, but I wouldn't. And... uh that year I started to come back and now we make, I make multiple trips over there a year and I'm back at this favorite place, um, again. So both the, having a, a, a childhood experience there, walking away from it and then being able to come back, it's a return home, but I'm a very different person. Mm-hmm. Um, but in some way when I'm standing on that beach, I'm the same person I always was. And there's an interplay there that I've just found incredible in the last five years as I've been returning to this place. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. So you, it's, it's, it's just a realization of your transformation. Like in this, in the, it, when you bring yourself back to that environment of childhood, um, that's a, that's a powerful, uh, way. And, and maybe that's something that the listeners can take from that is if, if you have a place where you can bring your new self to your old self and right. just show your old self what you become, there may right. be some power in that. It is, um, it's my little mini version of another mythological story called the hero's journey. And we mm-hmm. all probably know about that, but it's the, it's the Odysseus in Homer's, the Odyssey tells that's one of the classic stories that is this archetype. And Odysseus has to leave home and go face all the challenges of the world, go face all the monsters and the Cyclops and the sirens and all that stuff, but eventually returns home. And that's how the hero's journey works is there's a way, and there's a way in which we are all on that hero's journey. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why it resonates so well with us, and that's why so many stories, all the movies we go see, there, it's just the hero's journey being told over and over and over. 
And it resonates with us because we're all on that journey. And that was my version of it. And I didn't even know I was doing it. But this this idyllic origin story in my mind, um, I had to leave it. And I went out and had to face building a career and the hardships and trauma trials of getting married and working out a marriage. And then this whole story with my son. And, and then one day I was able to return home, but until then I couldn't, I wasn't ready. And suddenly I was, it was weird. And when I come back, people don't know me there. I'm not recognized. Um, but it's, it's home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in the midst of that, it's, it's, uh, yeah. And in the midst of that, you're building successful businesses and all those trials and all those kinds of things. You're just doing all of these great things. And, yep. and, and now the value that you're adding to the world is in, you know, one leader at a time, you know, you're offering this, you're coaching people to bring out that, you know, go deep and, and, uh, and, and bring that life to them as well. And you've done that with me. And I'm very grateful for that because, We've walked through a lot of, of these kinds of trials in my business and, and my career and, and all of these kinds of things. So, uh, so with Icon Coaching, what uh, are you, uh, what's, you, you've talked about what you're working through next. Mm -hmm. You know, you're kind of building some more platforms and things like that. Uh, how can people get in touch with you? How can you, how can people start to work with Icon? Yeah, that's great. Um, there's a couple ways to do it. You can go to iconcoaching.com. It's I-K-O-N coaching.com. Although I will tell you that website's under construction. And so while it's still functional, it's, it's, uh, in decline. Um, you can check us out at YouTube. Um, just search icon coaching. Um, or you can email me. My email is Kirk at iconcoaching.com. Um, and we'll get you connected to, to our framework and our system. Um, so that's how you get a hold of us. The um, the work we do is, it's I've spent ten or twelve years, um, not well. Let's say, leadership development, success literature, the coaching frameworks are, um, they're not that complicated. Mm -hmm. They're um, I don't think they're that complicated. They, we've kind of worked out how this process works, and and all the different coaching systems in the world are basically structured around similar questions. Um, the problem though is, while it's not complicated to understand, it's really difficult to implement. It's really difficult to do it. And so a lot of what coaching is and a lot of what we do is just walk with people through the process of doing it. So we have a framework that we're operating from and, and a, 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 a position or a point of view on the coaching work itself. Um, what I'm super proud of is the depth at which we're able to navigate um, these complex systems that people create in their lives and help them navigate through those in a way where they can really bring meaning and purpose back to work. Mm -hmm. So that's yeah. largely, and, and the ability to now do that um, through a team is actually exciting to me. I've been at capacity for years. And so for the, for the first time in a number of years, we actually have capacity again. Yeah. <laughs> we can actually, we're actually taking new clients. And uh, so we're excited about that. That's great. Well, that, that, that's some good news for the listeners here is that you have some capacity to take on yeah. some new clients because I speak from experience. It's been a great experience. You've walked through me through some significant trials and transformations yeah. and, and uh, <laughs> challenges in my business that you know about very well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I'm grateful for it. And uh, so, uh, so we'll put the email, the website, all that good stuff in the show notes. Kirk, I'm very grateful that you joined us today. 
Um, thank you for sharing your wisdom, your story, and uh, and some of uh, some of the things that uh, our listeners can get value from. And I look forward to seeing you soon. And everybody thanks, out there, thanks for joining us, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the Flow Over Fear podcast. If you'd like to learn more about getting into flow and learn the foundations of flow, I have a free video series on my website at www.adamcliffordhill.com called The Foundations of Flow. Feel free to go there and download it and start your journey to rising above fear and achieving greater flow in your life. If you like this episode, and I'm guessing you did if you stuck around for this long, then please do me a favor and hit the subscribe button and you will receive notifications when I have new interviews, new recaps, and new trainings that pop up on YouTube. Thanks again for joining us.